tonight's big series on Hall of Fame arguments that we're going to be doing. Uh, we've already done a couple of them, and we've got more coming over the next few weeks, and we're going to talk a lot about the Hall of Fame, uh, but we finally think we fixed it. All right, audio, Yay. sound, volume, excellent, much better. Let's start time. over again. Let's start <laughs> over again. Hi, and welcome to the Football no. Outsiders Radio Hour. No, <laughs> I'm not going to do the intro 37 times. Well, let's remember what we did for next week. Um, what uh, We uh, fixed it, and now we're here. And so we wanted to actually start by talking a little bit more about the Julio Jones trade, which we talked a lot about on last week's show. But now we have Tom here, who is our expert on everything Tennessee Titans, and um, Tom wrote a whole thing for his own website about sort of what this trade means for the Titans. So I want to have him on to talk about what this trade means for the Titans and whether he feels like it was, you know, a good deal for them and, and where it th he thinks it puts them for, for 2021. So hit us up and let's, uh, let's hear your thoughts, Tom. Yeah, I don't want to rehash last week's discussion, but I think the what, what really struck me about the trade is the concept of windows and teams working to try to exploit their window of opportunity. And so I've, I'm in line, my subjective opinion is in line with the consensus of our projections and the betting lines that the trade makes the Titans basically co-favorites, maybe slight favorites in the AFC South, but there's still a significant difference, distance behind Kansas City and Buffalo. So on the surface, you know, doing, uh, trading a couple significant draft picks and making a very rare financial commitment for them. That sort of seems in the abstract, like it's a very risky move and it's probably a mistake, especially when they've been an average team, especially when they were just, uh, they were just 14th in DVOA last year. So it's not like they're one of the best teams in the league, but at the same time, you know, this is the first year of the 14-team playoff structure, which means that you only have one team getting a bye. And I think that may have this, that may affect how aggressive it makes sense for teams to be going forward. And so with, when there are two buys, you know, it was relatively reasonable to say, okay, I'm building a really good team. Here's when we can be one of the two best teams in the league. But especially if you're in the AFC right now and you're looking at the Chiefs and Pat, with Patrick Mahomes to Andy Reid, it's, it's a much different thing to say, we're definitely going to be the best team and get the single bye. So just you know, getting the two seed versus the three seed is still important. It's still useful. You, you get to play that second round home game or you're guaranteed to play a second round home game, but it's not the same difference it was. So it makes sense for a, a team like the Titans that has a good shot to win their division that has a pretty good shot to win their division to be more aggressive this year than it did. And so they're reasonably should be more aggressive this year than they would have been in the same situation last year. In other and words, that's just one. I think what you're saying is the teams should be shooting for higher, smaller windows. Like go yes. for it when you're going for it. Like, like we're not trying to get a three to four year window of being one of the top teams. We're trying to get a one to two year window of being the number one team in our conference. Uh, that's yeah, that's one that's one thing. You could, that's one implication. The other one is that, you know, if you're looking at Tennessee specifically, you know, Derrick Henry's coming off a 
very heavy carry season. Um, so he's the first back in since Marco Murray in 2014 to, uh, to have at least 370 carries. So we're expecting some regression from him with his physical running style. He probably won't be around forever. Uh, he's entering his sixth season in the league. One of the things that makes Ryan Tannehill so good is his mobility. That's probably declining as he's, as he's growing older. Tennessee really has a, with their team is currently constructed, they have really a one to three year window starting now. And they're basically trying to maximize that window. And it makes more sense with the 14 team playoff structure that even if they're the third best team in the AFC, maybe, and they're shooting for a number three or number four seed, they can still, it still makes sense for them to, uh, to be aggressive as opposed to waiting a year to try to hit the number two seed. I yeah, Tom, one of the, the things we look at them and say, 14th best team in DVOA, et cetera. They look at themselves and say 11 and five playoff team the year before have been in a playoff window. They're not looking at themselves and saying, well, gee, we're only this good. They're looking to say we're, we're a player or two away uh, based on our record and based on what we've done in the playoffs. And when you look at it from that standpoint and what they have to do internally, I think it makes more sense whether we agree with it or not to say Julio Jones is out there. Why aren't we pursuing? And the other thing is they're in the AFC South. It's right. The Jaguars have the number. The Jaguars had the number one pick. You know, Trevor Lawrence is a really good prospect, but they still have a lot of work to do. Houston is Houston, and we don't have to just talk about them in detail. And you have the Colts, who are counting on uh, Carson Wentz after he was the after he was last in DR last year, and he, he has a consistent record of missing games. And their backup quarterback is. I mean, I don't know if he's if they have the worst backup QB situation in the league, and you know. Who are you giving a projection to in the almanac, Aaron? Is that Jacob Eason? I think that Jacob Eason is the backup quarterback. Oh my yeah. god! Oh my god! Where's Brissett? I'll, I'll have to I ask. Was... I'll have to ask Scott who who we're giving the second projection to. But that seems logical. I lost track of Brissett. Where'd he end up? Uh, Brissett is in. Oh shoot! Where's Brissett? Miami, I believe. Uh, he's, yeah, he's in Miami. He's now Tua Tagovailoa's backup. And yeah, the backup is Eason and then Sam Erlinger. I'm not sure what's better for Brissett right now, being behind Tua, which means you're one Tua collapse away from getting in there or having the chance to be in Nick Foles again uh, when anything happens to Mr. Sensitive in Indianapolis. I mean, the best, the, the worst backup situation is either the Colts or the Jets, where the Jets have James Morgan as the backup at this point. Yeah, well, one team is a rebuilding team. It's like, let's just save money as our back. And one team is trying to actually make the playoffs. Um, I will say, we can put up the Titans uh, graphic that we have. Tom has tweeted this out a couple of times, but if you cover the win-loss record for the Titans, it's very difficult to tell which of the last five years is the 11 and five year. <laughs> I don't even put that, that that graphic isn't actually in chronological order. It's 2016, 2018, 2020, 2017, you, 2019. Yeah, it's I impossible did, to tell. I did it in chronological order. So okay. when it's in chronological order, you can tell, you know, because we listed that the 11 and 5 season is the last season. But it's not demonstrably better than 2016, really. And it's actually by DVOA and Pythagorean wins, 2019, they were a better team than they were in 2020. Mm. So one of the things we talk about with advanced analytics is it's a good thing for teams 
to do advanced analytics so they know where they really are in their cycle, not where they think they are. And I think that's true of the Titans. The Titans are not at the top of the conference with the Chiefs and the Ravens and the Bills. They're really at, they're really the step below. I would devil's advocate that. Then what are they supposed to do? Well, I still, you still make this trade. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they, they were, I mean, the obvious team to make this trade because they had such a need at the wide receiver position. I mean, they were going to run a fourth, a fourth round pick out there as their third receiver and Josh Reynolds as their second receiver. So um, CO the legend says, to be honest, it felt like the 2019 Titans were the 11 and five team because of how different they were after Mariota was benched. And yeah, that second half of the year. Yeah, and when when they made the QB uh, change and ended up with an elite offense compared with an average defense, that's subjectively the best Titans uh, we've seen of the past five years. Now, let me ask you as our local Titans expert, what do you think about what's going to happen without Arthur Smith around? Because the question is, right, the new offensive coordinator is basically going to keep the same scheme. He worked under Arthur Smith. So there's this question of like how much of the offense is that scheme and how much is Arthur Smith's play calling that may not be able to be duplicated by a new offensive coordinator? Honestly, they don't, they have some, they have significant questions at tight end still, but you know, swapping in Corey Davis for Julio Jones is generally an upgrade. (laughs) All the rest of the personnel is basically the same. And Todd Downing, the new offensive coordinator, he's been an offensive coordinator before, albeit in a not great stint in Oakland. And he was involved, he was apparently heavily involved in third down and red zone calling last year. So it's not like there's, and he was around. So it's not like they're getting a new voice in the room. I'm not concerned about that. My concern about the Titans is not that they won't be good on offense, but uh, training for Julio Jones is, I mean, basically they have AJ Brown and Julio Jones and their other pass catchers are not much. So that's, so this trade is really doubling down on a stars and scrubs model on offense. And then the defense is. Has our worst projection. Yeah. Yeah. Dowling was the Raiders offensive coordinator in 2017 when Carr kind of fell off a bit and, uh, I don't know how to pronounce Zwelum. Zwelum says tight end is the Titans' weakest position. And that's true because they've got Ferkser, who is just a pass catcher. And then who's the other tight end who's more of the blocker? Jeff Swain. Jeff Swain. Oh, yes. wow. Okay. So those are their top two tight ends. Uh, so that's not a great, that's not a great combo. And I don't think there are tight ends out there in free agency that they could really sign. No, the Patriots yeah. took them all. Yeah. Yeah, it's maybe they're they'll be involved in the Zach Ertz sweepstakes, but we'll see what happens with that. That would be amazing. They just put Zach Ertz and just do complete dream team, Tennessee Titans dream team, getting all the weapons you possibly can for Ryan Tannehill. I love it. I don't. Know uh, I don't think it will work, but I love it as a storyline. If you're the Colts and you're Frank Reich, do you let Zach Ertz go to the Titans when <laughs> you have a personal relationship with him? Right, like, like you right. don't want to let Philadelphia players go to the Titans. No, you want to bring back the Philadelphia Eagles dream team, uh, you know, and, and give uh, give Mr. Sensitive one of his favorite targets back. I will. I will say, talking about the Titans against the Colts and just the AFC South in general. So much depends on what happens with Wentz. And it's like, I, you know, I've been editing 
Rivers McCown's Indianapolis chapter for the book and trying to get some kind of stats to put in for Wentz. And there really has never been anything like what happened with Wentz last year. Mm -hmm. If you look at the top passing DVOA drops from year to year in history, they're almost all guys who went from really, really good to average. Okay. Like Matt Hasselbeck in 2006, right? Matt, Matt Hasselbeck in 2005 was one of the two or three best quarterbacks in the league. Matt Hasselbeck in 2006 was slightly below average. So that's what you get. What you don't get is anything like what happened to Wentz, where a guy goes from being average to being abominable. Like the closest you get to that is like Matt Castle from the one good year he had in Kansas City falling apart or um, like Neil Lomax might be the closest comparison to Carson Wentz. (laughs) And Lomax was an injury thing. 1986, he had a really bad year in 1986 when he was in his fifth season. Was that an injury thing? Yeah, I think I want to say he had a degenerative hip issue that ended up really affecting his career because the other issue the other part that i thought of was zombie peyton manning from 2014 to 2015 right except even zombie peyton manning was really good and then all of a sudden became bad right and and obviously that has no comparison to Wentz whatsoever because you're talking there about an age thing right right? Right. Wentz is still supposed to be in his prime so it's like trying to predict like we're predicting that Wentz is going to bounce back just because in general players regress towards the mean players regress towards their previous level of performance. You have to expect that the offense around him is better than what he had in Philadelphia. The offensive line probably won't have as many injuries. It'll be better. The receivers are better, but like there's no historical, there's really no good historical comparison to go, Oh, well, this guy fell off in the same way at about the same time his career. And he bounced back like there's, or, or this guy fell apart at the same time of his career in the same way, and he didn't bounce back. Like, there's no good comparisons. I, I almost feel like going back to, like, the Joey Harringtons, the Rick Mirrors, and things like that. And those guys didn't start out very good. Like, they kind of right. went from yeah. a, a tolerably okay to falling off a cliff. But the, this kind of feels like that in that it's sort of like this broad-based collapse that we saw from Wentz. Um, and – yeah, yeah I, I, I go back and forth. I mean, I hope he bounces back. I don't want the guy to, to bounce back. But the more you hear in Philly about sort of where he was sort of all around, as an all-around person, uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily speak well for him kind of in a new circumstance, in a comeback narrative, coming in and saying, yeah, I'm going to seize this opportunity and, and suddenly have like, I don't know what the word I'm looking for, uh, uh, more of a uh, more of the self-confidence, let's say, to come out and, like, and really do this and really turn things around. I hope that's the case, but I'm very pessimistic, unfortunately, about how it's going to go. Zalem says the Colts can win 20 to 17 games, but can the Titans win 20 to 17 games? Perhaps not. Yeah, but I think the Titans, their idea is to win 30 to 27 games. Yeah, or to keep the score low because they ran the ball six million times. They control the clock. And this is interesting that Jay Molnar brings up. Oakland was 30th in pace under Downing in 2017. The Titans were third last year under Smith, which is something to watch. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm going to put that in the book. Yeah. It's unusual to be a running team and to be high, that fast pace. And high in, in situation neutral pace. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Right. 
Um, so the Colts, I think, I mean, the deal is absolutely that the Colts have the better defense of the two teams, but offense is just more trustworthy than defense. That's why our projections still have the Colts slightly ahead of the Titans. But if you asked me who I think is going to win the division, I would pick the Titans. Right. That's where I go to. Tom, did you, did you do the book chapters for the Titans? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not uh, on the book this year. Rivers, okay. Rivers has the whole AFC South. Okay. And Dan Pazuda has the Eagles. And let me tell you, there are two chapters of the book that get very heavily into Carson Wentz this year. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have to write either of them, and I'm happy with that. But yeah. I kind of wanted to get a little bit of the inside of, you know, you're, you're most of the way through a book chapter, or you're done a book chapter, you turn in the book chapter, and then the Julio Jones trade happens. And no, the, basically- the only thing that that screwed up because – Rivers uh, had time to get that in when he turned in the Tennessee chapter. He turned it in right after the trade. Okay. Was that we talked about Jacksonville having the easiest schedule in the league. Mm -hmm. And thanks to the Julio Jones trade, Jacksonville no longer has the easiest schedule in the league because Tennessee is better. Oh, wow. Hmm. Who has the easiest schedule in the league? So now we have to, now we have to say Jacksonville has one of the easiest schedules in the league, right? Right now, based on the current projections, the easiest schedule in the league, and you can all kick me for this is the new England, the new England Patriots. (laughs) (laughs) Again, and Tampa Bay, by the way. So it doesn't matter if you hate the Patriots or you hate Tom Brady, or you hate them both. Both Tampa Bay and New England are among the five easiest schedules that we project for next year. Uh, CO Legend says, I think Arthur Smith might be a big loss because outside of Henry and A.J. Brown, I don't think Titans skill position talent is great. And Smith made the absolute most of them. Well, you have to include Julio Jones now, too. I think with Jones, there's no question that the talent is still there. It's the injuries that he's had and the age and whether age contributes to injuries, I think that's the question, not his talent. The talent level is still super high. He was second in receiving DVOA last year. So that's they've got A.J. Brown and Julio Jones and Derrick Henry. That's pretty good skill position talent to go with Tannehill. I don't know what the offensive coordinator change is going to be. seems like there is a high-variance team overall because you can really see the situation where, oh, it's the end of, it's the end of Derrick Henry – and Julio gets hurt, and the offensive coordinator breaks down, and the defensive upgrades don't fit, and all of a sudden this team falls apart, whereas you can also see them being in that AFC championship game. And if they fall apart, they're probably still in second place. They're just not in the playoffs. Although, I mean, we talk about – there's a story you can tell where Jacksonville jumps up. Where First of all, these college coaches that come to the NFL tend to have a strong effect in their first year – before they lose their locker rooms and lose their jobs. (laughs) And the second is if Trevor Lawrence is Andrew Luck, Mm. it's such a huge upgrade. Like, but but the more likely scenario is that Jacksonville is something like six and 11. Right. And Tennessee, even if Tennessee declines, Tennessee is in second place. Right. Right. But that's not good enough. When they were 11 and five last year, they want to win the division. They want to go far in the playoffs. They want to make the Super Bowl and, I just I don't think their defense is going to be good enough to do it. Right. I agree. Yeah, I going position by position on defense. I think subjectively they're worse this season than they were heading into last season. <laughs> it's it's hard to say they're going to. It's hard to say prospectively they're better 
I mean, retrospectively, given how last year played out, it's hard to be worse, but right. I'm not optimistic. I feel like they should be able to rush the passer better, and that could upgrade everything, but I'm not married to that, you know? Yeah, it's they didn't have a second pass rushing defensive lineman. Uh, they never first. <laughs> and it's Jeffrey Simmons is kind of is okay. useful. But right. Yeah, it's adding Autry is a huge upgrade there, but he's not mm-hmm. as good of run down. He's not as good as a run player as Daquan Jones was, and they're still thin at defensive line. Uh, their third outside linebacker is uh, Rashad Weaver, their fourth round pick, who's facing assault charges. Just so you know, you have a rookie and who may end up with a, susp- a suspension from from the NFL, and they're still really right. thin there. So. And quarterback still, is thin. You're like Caleb Farley. Can he stay healthy? You're really you're depending on like Breon Borders or Chris Jackson or Christian Fulman, Fulton to kind of get their act together. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're counting on Fulton. And uh, right now, the nickelback is probably third round pick Elijah Molden. Okay, I mean, oh, who he's I a prospect, but yeah, he's sort of a safety corner. So he's like one of those safety he's, corner mix slot yeah. Jalen, Jalen Mills type dudes. Buddha Baker kind of like Mr. Tough Guy guy. Uh, whereas and he's really he's real he's like a mighty might. So I don't yeah. think he matches up really well with everybody. You put a big guy, you put Zach Ertz in the slot against him, he's gonna just catch you know low post entry passes against him. But you know, yeah. good prospect overall, but gotta be used right. All right, let's move on and talk about the Hall of Fame. That's the other subject we wanted to talk about on this show. Mike has been working on a really cool series of Hall of Fame arguments. Uh, What I like the best about them is the last one, the one we ran on Monday about the Bengals and their um, bring the jungle to the hall rally that they're doing, was that I think you really got into what the politics of the Hall of Fame are like. And I think that too often people don't understand how the Hall of Fame selection process works, who's doing the picking and how it differs from baseball. Because (laughs) when we talk about Hall of Fames, the number one Hall of Fame that's discussed in sports is baseball. So you have this image of the Football Hall of Fame as if it's just the discussion of like baseball where it's like the whole baseball writers association does the selecting mm-hmm. in football. It's just like 40 guys or so. Mm-hmm. And they're all associated with specific cities and specific mm-hmm. teams. Right. Like there are, I don't think there are like Nat. I don't know there if there are. are any guys who are sort of. Uh, there, yes, there are. Yes, there are. Yeah. There, there are, are a dozen at couple. large, like Peter King, for example. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, and so I'm going to say a dozen. I don't think it's quite a dozen. But they're there, and then you have regional, like 32 team-specific guys, plus I think there's leftover people from, like, St. Louis or whatever. Right, right. Um, Harold Balzer is still involved, right? He's St. Louis, and, yep. Right. And and there's a lot there. One is they have the final meeting is a meeting. What's up? Yeah, like, uh, not Harold Balzer, sorry. uh, Howard. Howard, Howard, yes. Right, right. And and, uh, and yes, they all meet in person at the Super Bowl. Right. So the perception, and I'll see this, it's like, oh, here comes the Hall of Fame balloting. And then I'm going to have to read everybody's little beard stroking, fart sniffing columns about how, who they voted for. Sorry, it's Bernie Miklosh, I think, was the guy I was thinking about from St. Louis. I'm pretty sure it's Howard. 
Is it Howard? Okay, I'm just confused. Yeah. All right, go on. Talk about talk about the the the, 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 the decisions. We're gonna call out people that like we might be watching right now who actually know us pretty well. But uh, people will say that like, oh, and now we're gonna have to hear everybody talking about their Hall of Fame bout. Like, that's baseball. Baseball is, you know, Aaron Schatz and Tom Gower, Mike Tanier. We all have a ballot, and then we can write a column about it. And well, I didn't vote for Derek Jeter because X Y Z. That doesn't happen in football. That, that, that's not even part of the uh, you know, the culture. It's not even possible because most of us don't have a ballot. I know that Peter King does sometimes talk about his ballot a little bit, and some of the guys do, but that's not how this is done. The other biggest difference is, you know, in baseball, there is no backlog of super qualified candidates. There's the steroid guys, and they're in their own universe here because baseball thinks it's a morality play, whatever. Um, but all the greats, they're the greats. They kind of show up for the Hall of Fame. They get voted on and they go in. And then there's sort of the halfway greats and all. And sometimes there's a debate and then they go in. That's not what's going on in football. There's a backlog that's been going on for 10, 15 years because the, the committee can only put five people in at a time. So 20, 25 semifinals show up for the Hall of Fame. They get turned into 15 finalists and then they get turned into five finalists. And these voters are in there having debates, conversations, et cetera, about which five to get in so it creates an entirely different vibe and i'll say this before we go on it's like and, and i'll say this because you know we we talked to bengals guys and bengals guys were chirping a little bit at me last week or two on on twitter it's not an argument about whether or not the guy's great you know uh, peter king and dan pompey and and, and uh Pal antonio are not sitting around saying gosh was willie anderson really great they know they're great the question is are they great compared to Tony Baselli, who's been waiting six turns to get in. John Lynch, who waited eight turns to get in. Um, Leroy Butler, who's been waiting X number of turns to get in. That's the debate. And when you have a Hall of Fame conversation, you have to talk about how these people compare to the other guys who are going to be on the ballot with them. Zuelum points out there are 48 selectors, 16, of, 16 at large, 32 associated with specific teams. And may I add, by the way, for anyone who's listening, one of my great career goals is to become one of the at-large selectors. So if they're ever looking for yeah. someone to be the analytics voice, I'm here. I've, expressed, I've expressed this. I've expressed this interest to people who are on the Hall of Fame committee. So well, I'm hoping I, someday. You're your ass past me. You're gonna get past me to get on that committee. We'll get you as the you. Philly representative. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll get in as the as the at-large. I don't think I could beat Ron Borges to be the New England representative. But, there you um, go. Uh, first of all, let's talk about, let's sort of preview the rest of the series. So the yes. first, the first article was, um, sorry, I can't remember. I, I forgot, I forgot it was Matt, Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan was the first one. Yes. That, the second one was uh, the Bengals guys, Willie Anderson, Ken Anderson. Ken Riley. Ken Riley, Chad Johnson, uh, like and, a whole list and, of Bengals guys, some of whom like Chad Johnson are just, thanks for playing you had yes. some good years but like let's move on with our lives and some of whom like <laughs> ken riley like deserve actual debate right right and then next week is the sack pack yes which is <laughs> talking about the defensive ends who still haven't gotten in like julius peppers and and uh, demarcus ware and jared allen right robert mathis and which dwight of those freeney. guys is most likely dwight freeney yep yep right. And then are we doing Frank Gore the week after that? 
We are. I just submitted Frank Gore recently, and that's. I was going to take him off the list until the Matt Ryan uh, uh, comment thread uh, was mostly about Frank Gore, and I don't know how these things happen. The Bengals thread is mostly about Nick Foles. So, you know, the world turns upside <laughs> down on the comment threads. I don't understand that at all. I understand how Frank Gore gets into the debate. So I, I just submitted one about Frank Gore, who I think is an interesting conversation. And then I believe we are going to do uh, uh, Edelman, but I think it's we're doing Edelman. Edelman and the Patriots, sort of the whole Patriots dynasty and yes. Brady associated people. Right. And, and the, the Brady adjacents. Yes. yes. The Brady bows. And then the last one will be the most controversial one because it will be Eli Manning. Obi Eli, and good night, folks. And that's the end of it. And I guess I'll, I'll pregame the Eli a little bit. I'm not going to give away the point that I really want to make here, but there, there is. I, I've been, I've, I've seen hundreds of preliminary Eli arguments run across Twitter over the last couple of years, from years before he retired, etc. No one who is associated with voting for the Hall of Fame is going to say two Super Bowl rings. Got to go in. Two rings, rings, got rings, two rings, two rings, got to go Otherwise, in. Otherwise, they'd put in Jim Plunkett. They would have put, and they would have put, and, and, and that's not the level of, of debate and discussion that goes on between these people who've been columnists for 30 years, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that you're going to say, two rings, so what? Doing that good, screw them, get out of here. Two rings definitely says, means you need to have a conversation about this individual. Like, this is not something that you just throw in, into, a, into a bin, but that doesn't mean that the conversation automatically leads to getting in. And, uh, I'll talk about it more when I write about. It. I think he's going to wind up in the finalist conversation a few times, in the semifinalist conversation a lot, and that there's going to be a lot of heated debate that probably won't necessarily be decided by my opinion, your opinion, statistics, or anything having to do with, well, two rings are this, two rings are that. Topher Dahl says, I do appreciate Judge for sharing some statistics on the process, even if he doesn't explain his vote. I believe he means yes. Clark Judge, yes, who is with CBS. He's and got a thing now called at large guys, I believe. Yeah, he has a thing called the Talk of Fame Network he's involved with, too. So he and a couple of the other uh, uh, older guys and Clark helped us a lot early in our careers. I'll say that um, they do a thing where they'll interview old players, they interview old coaches. They'll talk a lot on a I don't know if it's a podcast or a serious channel or whatever about the Hall of Fame. So, yeah, Clark Judge does do a lot with that. Um, yeah, a couple of, of the other writers have taken a lot of time with me over the years to kind of go through what they're thinking. Mike Sando is really good and open about it. Yes, yes, he has been in the past. Uh, 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 Jason Cole has been very uh, helpful to me in the past. Dan Pompey has been helpful to me in the past. Peter, of course, helps a lot. Damo here in Philadelphia helps out a lot. So, you know, so... Zalem points out, not too many younger folks among the current selectors. It's a lot of legacy media folks. I think that's how it's designed to be. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I don't know how many guys are younger than Mike Sando. Right. that's why when I talk about it, this being a career goal of mine, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> See, that's why I'm wearing the hat. I can slip um, in wearing this hat into the con- old-time legacy media. Considering the politics you just mentioned, what do you make of the notion that certain guys would be in if they had played for a different team? And you wrote about this a bit in the Bengals piece, I think. It's like true but not interesting. It's like, yes, well, obviously, some guys, if, they, if you start switch-swapping teams, are almost the equal player. Um, and this is a great conversation to have when you're trying to pick free agents, you know, or you're trying to make predictions moving forward. You know, what would the, you know, if you take this quarterback away from these receivers, who would he be? 
And when you have to pay them and figure out who wins the Super Bowl next year, that's great. Um, I don't know what that means to a Hall of Fame argument, frankly. Um, the idea that like, oh, well, what would happen if Archie Manning uh, and, and Terry Bradshaw switched places? Well, I'm guessing Archie Manning wins some Super Bowls. I don't know if Terry Bradshaw wins any, and I don't know what that necessarily proves. At the end of the day, somebody went out there and accomplished something. Yeah, it reminds me of what I say about Adam Vinatieri and mm. the fact that the Hall of Fame is one. about arguing about what people did. Like right. I've done research, we've written about it numerous times. Like Adam Vinatieri has the most uh, clutch field goals because Adam Vinatieri has the most clutch attempt opportunities far beyond anybody else right. in NFL history. Mm. And there is absolutely no reason to believe that Adam Vinatieri hitting clutch field goals in the past had any predictive quality as far as Adam Vinatieri hitting clutch field goals in the future. But that's not what the Hall of Fame argument is about. Right. Hall of Fame discussion is about what these guys actually did. Right. And Adam Vinatieri hit those field goals. And it's right. why Adam Vinatieri is going to be the second kicker to go into the Hall of Fame. Uh, third, third kicker. Third. Stenner Root and, and Morton Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly right. And that's a great example. And I'm I'm not interested in hearing, well, you know, Matt Stover could have done that or Jason Elam could have done that. Like Matt Stover probably could have done that, but he didn't. He did. And he had a phenomenal career and did a lot of things. This is the guy who did it, you know, and these are game winning. And then it's like, well, then you want Julian Edelman in because Edelman was just, uh, you know, riding along for, with Brady. It's like, well, no, Vinatieri actually did the thing that won the game <laughs> over and over and over again. The thing that like, that like made the confetti go out and, and had it going like this, et cetera, et cetera, and did it with other teams and did it longer than anybody else. There's a lot of other components to that. We're not just taking Super Bowl kickers and putting uh, them in the Hall of Fame. You know? Rivers, by the way, Rivers McCown, who's on, his points out Randy Bullock. Yeah. Could, Randy Bullock could not have done that. So that's a bitter <laughs> Texans fan. Jay Molnar says, Dale Lawley, who is the Steelers voter, explained on a podcast, he did the Hall of Fame argument for Palomalu. It's tougher for people to argue for you if you're not a lifer in a specific city or you burn bridges with the media. And that's true because um, the argument is made by one specific person on the committee for every player. So when you have a player who's played in like four or five different markets, you don't know who's going to make the argument and they don't necessarily have one person making the argument for them. It, it also makes things weird because like, you know, uh, who, who makes the Tory Holt argument now that the Rams are not in St. Louis anymore? Right. Uh, right. But... Um, and you get the same person with two people on their ballot. Yeah. For example, for the Rams person actually had Bruce and Holt on the ballot for a while. Right, he had to do the arguments yeah. for both of them. Yes, uh, and I, I can't necessarily share tales about that, but it turned into a very confusing situation where you're arguing for two guys and it kind of flip-flops. Similar thing happened briefly with uh, Zach Thomas and uh, Jason Taylor. So you wind up in, in that situation. Now, now, of course, the voters are not walking in saying, man, if, if the guy from Miami doesn't tell me who Zach Thomas is, I have no idea what's going on. Like everybody in there is, a, is somebody who knows the NFL at a high level, was covering it for decades, knows the guys in their division, the superstars, et cetera. But those arguments, it's like, it's not like you're just going in and like, well, you know, he did this and this. You're usually building some kind of portfolio if you're trying to push the guy in. The portfolio is full of testimonials. Topher and Andy talking in the comments here. I think they're talking about not just what if player X had had those stats for a better team. Mm -hmm. Like what if Archie Manning had played for the Steelers? Right. But about what if 
player X had played for a team with like a bigger media footprint. Uh, so example, what if Matt Ryan had had the same career, but in Chicago rather than Atlanta? I've always talked about this. Matt Ryan has lost more money in endorsements of any player I can imagine because he played his college ball in the worst college football market in America, which is Boston. <laughs> and he played his NFL ball in the worst NFL market in America, which is Atlanta. Uh, I think personnel, I think he's also the most normal starting quarterback or one of the most normal like starting as a, quarterbacks. Like as a person. Like as, yeah, a, as person, a person. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's not a complicated fellow is what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll say this now. There's, a, there's the Steelers thing. And the Steelers thing is kind of like, well, six million members of Steel Curtain Steelers got in. And there's a sense that like Steelers with their national footprint of fans get in and we can talk about that to a degree. The big market bias is a myth. And I, I'm going to say this right now, since we're going to be talking about Eli in the future, there is no New York bias. So, and people just like New York bias. So he's in, okay. Is Phil Sims in the hall of fame? No. Is Joe Klecko in the hall of fame? No. Is Mark Gasno in the hall of fame? No. Is Mark Bavaro in the hall of fame? No. Is Tiki Barber in the hall of fame? No. Okay. There's no New York media bias. that's getting guys in the hall of fame. I don't think there's a Chicago media bias either. There's no. a bunch of old bears who are in because no. they were, part of the Mike Ditka bears. And, you know, that's the stuff of song and story and those Steelers were the stuff of song and story. So they get in. So I think, you know, Bengals fans are like, it's because we're in a small media market. This happens. Green Bay is the smallest media market in the world. It's because your team stunk for decades. Okay. And then you had great players. And I think we can talk about those great players, but uh, you know, they didn't, they weren't on Super Bowl teams. They weren't on championship teams. And yes, for that reason, some of them did get shunted and some of their resumes don't look as strong as, as maybe guys who played on a dynasty type team. So let's talk about your sort of your wish list of guys who you think need to make it into the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm going to mention that I'm going to bring up a few numbers. I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, Pro Football Reference Hall of Fame monitor. Okay, cool. But when I talk about the Hall of Fame monitor, the Hall of Fame monitor is not designed to tell you who deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. It's designed to tell you who is going to be in the Hall of Fame. It's based on what the voters have looked for in the past, not necessarily what they should look for. Okay. So uh, it sort of compares players to other players, but it's not trying to make like qualitative arguments about who was the better player. So let's put up the list of Mike Tanier's wish list for the Hall of Fame. I believe we have a little bit of a graphic here. And going alphabetically, the first player is a player that you talked about uh, this week in the Bengals article, and that's Willie Anderson, the best right tackle of the 90s and 2000s. Ah, all right. Uh, Bengals <laughs> stands. If you're out there, best right tackle is like best rhythm guitarist. Okay. Now I say rhythm guitarists belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. John Lennon belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, obviously. Uh, Glenn Fry belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Do you think for a second they could do the things that Slash uh, and Jeff Beck could do? No, they don't. So we're talking about a different category. And I'm, uh, Willie Anderson, one of the reasons I picked him is that we just talked about him. Another is he's on the semifinalist list right now. Yep. One thing I didn't want to put on this wish list that you guys see up there now uh, is I didn't want to put Bastali and Leroy Butler on there. They're on the finalist list. They're being debated every year. They're going to wind up getting pushed through the Hall of Fame. I wanted to go down the semifinalist list. And Willie Anderson, while I don't consider him the equal of Willie Rofe, uh, Walter Jones, Jonathan Ogden, and those other great left tackles. I think he is equal uh, of Kevin Mawai and some of the other, and, and Hutchinson. 
um, and some of the and Fanica and some of the other guards, centers, guys who like moved all over the offensive line, non-left tackles who had long careers who are exceptional at what they did for many years. And under those circumstances, I think he deserves consideration for the Hall of Fame. Uh, your second name is uh, Cliff Branch. Yes. And now Cliff Branch is interesting. So Cliff Branch gets a 78 on the uh, Pro Football Reference Hall of Fame monitor, which puts him behind all of those modern wide receivers who are still kind of waiting to get in, a lot of whom are not um, are not uh, eligible yet. Right. Uh, but it also puts him a little bit behind Harold Jackson and Henry Ellard. It's close. Okay. It's the kind of thing where you don't like, you wouldn't use that to decide who deserves to get in or not. Right. But it's interesting why Cliff Branch, as opposed to some like other older receivers like Harold Jackson and Henry Ellard, who are also sort of waiting to get in. Yeah, I like those guys. I like Sterling Sharp as well. Um, it's just in my mind, he seems to be overwhelmingly qualified based on what he did during those late 70s Raiders teams, and particularly in the postseason. I know there was a lot of talk about Edelman's postseason record, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at what Cliff Branch did in Super Bowls, in playoff games, in an era where there weren't lots of wildcard games, et cetera, uh, it's, it's uncanny what a great postseason player he was. Lynn Swan is in because of his postseason accomplishments. I think Cliff Branch blows him away. And what's interesting, I know Branch has been on a lot of people's shortlist for years, and it seems like the seniors committee just keeps reaching around him and all. So it's like, oh, we need to go get a, an ex Raiders great on uh, the seniors committee. Well, let's get Ken Stabler. Like, okay, right. that's we great. need a wide receiver. Let's get Drew Pearson and Harold Carmichael. And I grew up rooting for Harold Carmichael. And they get everybody else in the world. And for some reason, they skip Branch. I've never heard anything negative about Branch. I've never heard a reason why this is the case. He just always seems to be like, like they, they reach into the bushel apples and they pull out a different apple. Uh, question for you, Mike. Um, yes. One of the things that seems to have happened with the Hall of Fame is that Ron Wolf in particular seems to be a voice behind the scenes and that there may be Go on, keep going. And that Go there on. may be other in the bench. It's just he's the name that I remember in particular. But and you know, he was a longtime writer scout before he was ended up as the general manager of the Packers. And right. since and I wonder if he's played a role in branch and if there are other people of similar stature who play a role behind the scenes, even though they aren't members of the committee. I won't say specifically about Branch, but Ron Wolf is a someone who everyone listens to on the committee. There are other very high profile people uh, who know a lot about football, uh, some of whom dress terribly, um, who will give their opinions behind the scenes. Um, and the, and the, that individual's mentor has the same first name uh, is often giving behind the scenes, giving a lot of this information. So uh, there is a, I won't say a handful. There are a, a lot of former players and former coaches who talk a lot to the senior members of the committee, the made men, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And their opinion carries a lot of weight. So if one of them is sandbagging behind the scenes, uh, I don't even say sandbagging, but sort of like being detrimental to somebody like, like say a Randy Gratishar saying that guy was only kind of a, uh, you know, a product of the system or whatever that gets heard and that, and that, and that flows through that, that may be something that happens with branch In branches example. I've never gotten a whisper back that that's, that's what's happening. It's more a matter of that. That seems to be as logical a thing as any that could be Wolf, for example, or someone else, you know, Madden, whoever standing hard for stable as opposed to standing hard for branch as opposed. So it might not be a sandbagging thing. It might be, this is my personal priority list and he's not on it. Yeah. It's uh, I, since you talk to voters a lot more than I do, I thought you'd have more insight into the role of 
people like that in the process. Yeah, no, they are very, very powerful. You saw that in the Centennial Committee uh, selections, what looked like uh, a lot of uh, old coaches' favorite players or their dad's favorite players. And you can look at that and kind of like draw a line to particular powerful people behind the scenes. But yeah, I think that's appropriate to a degree. And that's something fans oh, don't yeah. understand. Like, yeah, we sit here and argue and people argue on Twitter. And then Bill Parcells talks to a couple of sports writers uh, off the record and says, this was my, the hardest guy I had to coach against. Oh, this guy I thought was nothing, whatever. And they, they, they're talking over a cocktail in the corner of the high velocity lounge in Indianapolis. None of us are privy to it. It's off, you know, it, but it gets talked about in the room and that shapes some people's Hall of Fame candidacies, maybe to an extreme degree, but you're going to listen to me or you're going to listen to Ron Wolf and Bill Parcells. I mean, I would say go listen to those guys too, hopefully with a grain of salt if you think it's, uh, you know, if, if it's, uh, you know, like a, a, an ax they're trying to grind. Uh, Zwalem points out, what about players like Tony Baselli? I'll point out for your Hall of Fame wish list here, you picked, you, you skipped over players who have been finalists. Yes. So we'll talk about Baselli in yes. a couple minutes, but he's been a finalist already. You have another tackle here who I don't think a lot of current fans have probably ever heard of, and that's <laughs> Mike Ken. So Mike make Ken. the case for Mike Ken from the Falcons. He was one of the great left tackles whose career begins in the era when like two tight end offenses and Washington Reaganomics type offenses in the early 80s start to explode and plays for some great Falcons teams in the Steve Barkowski era. Continued playing left tackle into the era of the run and shoot, the Jerry Glanville era, where there's no tight end next to you. So it's kind of like you're, you are really one of those first blindside off on the island guys. I was playing at a all pro uh, uh, Pro Bowl level at the end of his career as well. So you have a very long career that spans a lot of different systems. He's also one of the uh, pioneers in the NFLPA, somebody who was a very important person in the history of the NFL Players Association and, and Union and was one of the guys who was front and center during the replacement games, et cetera. I know you're not supposed to count for good or bad off the field stuff, but I've always had a question. What does off the field mean? Okay, off the field clearly means whatever's happening, you know, at the bar on Friday night, maybe that doesn't count, et cetera. In the locker room? You know, in the, in the clubhouse when you're trying to put things together and, and, and try to create a modern football that has free agency, et cetera, et cetera. So that, as a value added to an incredible career, is why I've often advocated for Mike Ken to be in the Hall of Fame. I will say this is interesting. The top offensive tackle in the, in the Hall of Fame monitor who's not in is Joe Thomas. Duh. Yeah, yeah. first bell. But here's who's also really high and higher than Ken. A guy named Jim Tyrer who made AFL All-Pro for six straight years for the Chiefs in the 60s, who probably yeah. brings up an interesting conversation about just how much credit you want to give to the mid-60s AFL. Yeah, 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 that's exactly it. I don't think anybody's crying over a player from the mid-60s AFL not making it, but it's an interesting discussion. Feldon Stanton says Jim Tyrer is a great case who will never make it in. He was, I mean, and obviously he's a great ball player, but you have to look at, okay, AFL All-Pro lists. Uh, you know, from that era. And then you start asking the question, how many Chiefs from that team do we need in? I mean, I don't want to be like right. that, but like there's a lot of Chiefs from that team and they keep adding more. They were phenomenal, um, but you start to become like the Packers and the Steelers and, and like, okay, we get it. Some of those guys might've gotten their all pro because they were next to, in between two other all pros, et cetera, et cetera. The next guy on your wish list is, I believe the third highest guy in Hall of Fame monitor hmm. who's eligible, but not yet in. And that's Patrick Willis 
from the 49ers. And Patrick Willis brings up a couple of interesting discussions. First of all, the two guys who are ahead of him in Hall of Fame monitor are Zach Thomas and Reggie Wayne. So Zach Thomas versus Patrick Willis brings up the point you've made to me often, which is every team (laughs) has its linebacker. Like every city has a linebacker who they think needs to be in the Hall of Fame, whether it's Sam Mills or Clay Matthews or Teddy Bruschi Mm -hmm. or Zach Thomas, Patrick Willis. And the other is that Patrick Willis is sort of a similar argument to Tony Baselli who Zalem right. brought up before, because you're talking, it's, a, it's the whole Terrell Davis argument. It's a, and Sterling Sharp, by the way, is the same argument. Yes. It's a massively high peak with a yep. short career in a sport that breaks you down very quickly when it breaks you down. Right. So why Willis, as opposed to like Zach Thomas, I mean, you can say you want them both in, but why right. would you put Willis ahead of Zach Thomas? And what do you think about the discussion of, just how much should you value career versus peak? Yeah, I'm not putting him ahead of Zach Thomas. I'm kind of saying Zach Thomas, who I believe is a fourth-time finalist. I'm yeah, pushing he'll be him. in eventually, right? Yeah, he's he's pushing in. And kind of like Baselli, he's pushing in. I want to advocate for the guy coming in behind him with Willis. And I think that there is a, a, a general similarity in them, you know, like, the, again, that high peak, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I, I talk about this with Frank Gore. It's so complicated with the Hall of Fame. You have to take each case differently and uniquely and there should be a place for the high short peak guy and i don't think wills's peak was even that short you know i don't think it was terrell davis's short i think it was like a, a four or five six year run there yeah it was longer peak. than terrell davis's peak right 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 there has to be a place for that and there has to be a place as well i think for some of your frank gores and some of your you know jackie slaters in the past and you know on a different day i might be here arguing for a jim marshall or mike ken etc cetera, etc cetera. so both of them are the case what, what I don't want to happen is a guy like Patrick Willis to get stuck in the semifinalist days and grind there for a couple of years. I want to kind of get him into the finalist stage and roll him through, uh, you know, while memories are fresh, so to speak, of how good those 2011, 2012, 2013, 49ers are, because that organization has moved on. When you think back on that team, you know, all of a sudden Colin Kaepernick's name pops up and now you're thinking about politics and everything else like that. Think about, think about the team on the field. Think about Willis and Gore and Kaepernick and all those guys on the field, how great they were, and make a strong case for the guy who was the cornerstone of their defense. I'm with you. I think Willis should be in. Good. Cool. I'd like to see him in. Your uh, yeah. fifth guy is Lewis Wright who was a longtime Denver corner, who you, you actually addressed in the Bengals article when you talked about Ken Riley. Uh, now, I will say an interesting thing is, is first of all, I feel like Lewis Wright has a little bit of Richie Ashburn disease, <laughs> which is that he didn't make all pro. He's not that high in the um, like he's behind some other guys in the Hall of Fame monitor because he didn't make all pro very much because he played at the same time as a couple of other really amazing corners like Mike Haynes. Yes. So in the same way that Richie Ashburn didn't make that many all-star teams because he had to compete with like Willie Mays and Duke Snyder, like, so Louis Wright has the same, Louis Wright has the same thing going on. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, made, make the case for Lewis Wright. He made the all seventies decade team. I think the pro football hall of fame, all seventies decade team, which was difficult to do because one cornerback is Mel Blunt and that's in, and you got to squeeze in. And if I'm mistaken about that, and I don't have it in front of me right now, He's also another one of these guys who's like peak goes from 76 to 83. So like you're hard to get on the, the all, you don't get this all decade team, best guy of this, best guy of this, because you're having a great year in like 82, 83. You're playing with the Elway teams 
but you're also kind of playing with the Gratishar, Craig Morton teams. Um, and he was considered, he was considered the second best cornerback of his era behind Blunt for several of those seasons. And then you're right, was stuck in the, in the conversation with Mike Haynes and Lester Hayes, another great player from that era, but he was considered an outstanding bump and rum guy. He was considered a heart and soul guy, leadership type of guy. I think his interception totals were a little bit lower. I believe he dropped an interception or two in the key playoff games. And I think that that's the kind of thing that like stuck in the minds of voters years ago. I know for years, uh, Viking center Mick Tinglehoff uh, was, was not in the Hall of Fame because he didn't play well in Super Bowl four against Curly Culp. And it's like, that's it. That's the thing. Curly Culp beat you for a sack and you're not, in the, you're, you're not, that Hall of Famer beat you. So you're not a Hall of Famer. I don't, don't necessarily subscribe to that, but you look at the whole thing. And I, I think Ray has a better case than, than Gratishar, who I think most people point to as the, as the Broncos guy and the overall body of accomplishments there, very strong. And he's from a player and a position that are not well represented in the Hall of Fame. So just for discussion, last year's semifinalists who haven't made it yet in order by Hall of Fame monitor, Zach Thomas, Reggie Wayne, Patrick Willis, Tory Holt, Leroy Butler, my personal emotional favorite, Richard Seymour. Yeah. I, you know, I've talked about before I started Football Outsiders, when I was just a Patriots fan, the jersey I owned was Richard Seymour. <laughs> then Tony Baselli and Heinz Ward. I don't think Heinz Ward should get it. I think when you look, and we'll talk in a second about wide receivers coming up, yeah. I think Wayne and Holt are neck and neck, mm -hmm. and they're going to both get in. I think Heinz Ward doesn't get it. Yeah, that sounds right. I know Wayne and Holt have been scavenging votes from each other and other Colts and other Rams keep coming up and scavenging votes from it. Freeney and Mathis are coming forward uh, to kind of cause more problem. And I call, I call Wayne and Holt the, the Sammy Hagar receivers because they were there at the end of the era when the other guy had gone into like the championship or Harrison right. and Bruce were the bigger ones there. But yeah, I, I see that with those guys. I mean, and also Richard Seymour is your hell car, Michael. Uh, but I'll, I'll say this. Uh, I think, I mean, Seymour's going to get in. But what I kept hearing from uh, from voters, it's like there's this sort of thing where it's like uh, they'll look at a guy on the finals list and say, yeah, can't get to him this year. Just can't get to him this year. Why can't you get to him this year? Because you got Peyton Manning and Calvin Johnson to get to, get to this year. And John Lynch has been waiting eight years, and, you know, like we know him personally, he's going to kick down our doors. Seymour's going to work his way up to being John Lynch or being Baselli or being like Fatica. Like, we got to get him in now. This is the year, and, and he'll get pushed through. Leroy Butler's got to be like that. Leroy yeah. Butler's, he's got to be close, right? Like Paul Amalu yeah. went in, Lynch went on, went in. It's got to be Leroy Butler next year. Yeah, it's, it's been chaos with the safeties uh, because mm -hmm. Atwater was fluttering around. Lynch was fluttering around. People have like strong opinions prone against Lynch. Uh, and, and, and they would be pushing, the Paul Amalu's would push past them. The Brian Dawkinses would push past them. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Paul Amalu, I think, is, a, is, a, is actually a cut above these guys, et cetera. But then you reach the point where it's like, now this is your sixth, seventh, eighth ballot. You got to get in. Now I think it's wide open at safeties. I think this year, there's not a lot of great first ballot guys who have to get in. The first ballot this year is like DeMarcus Ware and Steve Smith. I was and about to go over that. Yeah, Steve. You can go over the whole thing, but they can all, they can, they're great players. They can all wait a year while we get Baselli through, Zach Thomas through, Leroy Butler through. All these guys that like the local media is like, you snubbed him, you snubbed him. Get those guys through, take a deep breath, and like, all right, now let's talk about Steve Smith. Let's talk about the Marcus Ware. The last, the top four guys in the class of 2022 are Steve Smith, Demarcus Ware, Andre Johnson, and Anquan Bolden. So yeah. the question is, of those wide receivers, which ones do you think should go in? 
And do you think any of them should go in before Wayne and Holt? I think Wayne and Holt should go in first before those guys. Mm -hmm. Steve Smith does a little bit better in the Hall of Fame monitor, but I actually prefer Andre Johnson. Andre Johnson, I think, does better statistically. And I think if you consider like who their quarterbacks were, yes, Steve Smith had to deal with like Jake DeLome, but look right. at the offense in Houston and what it was without Andre Johnson. Right, right. That's true. The close your eyes and picture them test of all of them, including Holt and, uh, and Bruce, I think is Steve Smith. The close your eyes and picture them. It's the one, it's the broken hand catch. It's all those playoff games where he was returning kicks and things like that. And it's him on TV kind of being like the cantankerous dude he is, which was fun too. But so, but uh, you know, I look at them all and it's like, I think I, would, I might put Steve Smith ahead of all of them. They all have very strong cases. It's going to be a cluster hunt. Yep. It's going to be a cluster hunt with all those guys in there. They need to get people in in 2022 because you get to 2023 and you start with Joe Thomas and Darrell Revis, who will both go in on the first ballot. And Joe then, Thomas will. Yeah, Revis will too. And then Dwight Freeney, James Harrison, Navarro Bowman, and another one that I'm going to go to the math for, Shane Leckler. No! Uh, Heresy. He is the greatest punt. He is the greatest punter in history. Tom, I know you've been quiet for a while. Are you are you as a guest as I am? Um, you know, when Ray Guy went into the Hall of Fame a few years ago, my favorite observation was that well, Guy had well, well the you could official well you could quote unquote officially field a complete team at that point. No safety, <laughs> nobody who played safety the first four years of his career, who made his debut after the AFL NFL merger in 1970, had was in the Hall of Fame. And now you've obviously started to see that backlog cleared a couple of years, which is why yeah, I was interested in the Leroy Butler discussion. Because when Leroy, when Leroy Butler's name first came up, they were not electing any safeties at all. The only the only guy uh, who played significant time at safety was Ronnie Watt, and he was a corner his first four years in the league. There were literally no safeties in the in, in the NFL. So it's like, of course, so you know, addressing Leroy Butler now is more of a correcting an oversight. Yeah. yeah. There's a saying, and it's kind of been passed down from the older uh, 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 sports writers down, like the further you are away from the ball, the less impact you have. Now that's accurate to 1950s football, 1960s. Not accurate football. now. No. It is it's... not. And I think there's still that mentality. You're, you're far away from the ball as a safety or a wide receiver. Like really? Like that's, that's insane. 2023, we're going to have some arguments because 2023 is Leckler, who I don't think will get in. And Devin Hester. And I actually expect there to be more discussion of Hester than there is of Leckler. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I think Leckler had the better career. Because with Hester, I think you can argue that a better version of Hester has come along since. In You're talking about Corduroy. Patterson. Yeah, my thing, and I love these guys, and I like turning them around. I, I'll put the punter in a different category, but return men and all. You know, Steve Tasker has come up. I think he still runs around the semifinalists uh, yep. every couple of years. He was a semifinalist last year. And I'm on his radio show sometimes. I don't want to be, and I'm always like, hey, good luck. And it's like, I do not want to have to go to Leroy Butler and explain to him why the kick gunner uh, yeah. is in. You know, I, I, like, yeah. like you got to turn, again, it's not saying Steve Tasker wasn't great, unique, et cetera, et cetera. Like, okay, De Devin Hester's in. You got you to then go to Steve Smith and explain, like, yeah. you were a return man who became a star receiver, but we're putting the designated return man in over you. And Steve Smith's going to look you in the eye and imagine what he'll say. 
and I, and I get that. That's a, that's an issue, you know. And by the way, a, a better version of Tasker has also come along. Oh, uh, you're. I see. This is all a stealth Matthew Slater discussion. You I know. you you put in Tasker. You have to put in Matthew Slater. I don't think either of them belongs in. No, I love Matthew Slater. He's given me some long interviews in the past. He's like Mike Allstott, Moose Johnson, like the fullbacks who got in every year, all pro every year as fullback. Yes. It's phenomenal. I hope you, I hope that like he shouldn't Tasker, have, oh, he shouldn't have made it last year, but his career has been outstanding. Yeah. I, I hope that like Tasker Slater winds up with his own radio show and a fleet of Dodge dealerships and 600 grandkids and everything else like that. And everything. It's, I don't think it's a Hall of Fame conversation. And then 2024, uh, the top names are Antonio Gates and Julius Peppers. Okay. And then 2025, the top names are Luke Keekley and Eli Manning. And that brings us back full circle to your series on <laughs> Hall of Fame arguments. And that the series on Hall of Fame arguments is going to end with Eli Manning. And that lets us finish the show for this week, which we're having some kind of weird visual difficulty. So this is a good time to finish the show for this week. Yeah, we lost Tom. And we lost Tom. All right. I'm going to sign us out then thank you so much for watching us on twitch.tv slash fb outsiders want to remind you the fo radio hour is on twitch every thursday at 1 p.m eastern 10 o'clock pacific thank you for watching thank you for chatting with us thank you for listening on our podcast network thank you for watching on youtube remember come to the twitch show because with the twitch show you can be in the chat you can uh, talk to us live and we'll answer your questions live. Uh, so thanks to everybody who watches, Topher Dahl, Lonigan, uh, Zalem, uh, everybody who's made some comments on the chat during the show, uh, Rivers and Andy and Feldon Stanton, and uh, it's been really good. Uh, I'm Aaron Schatz. Thanks from Mike Tanier and Tom Gower, and we will see you all next Thursday for another edition of the FO Radio Hour. <laughs>